You're listening to Change the World, the podcast for Jewish nonprofit leaders. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. I am sitting with Rabbi Shlomo Landau, whose name you might recognize from his recent appearance on a very, very popular Jewish podcast, Inspiration for the Nation. Just listen to it. I highly recommend you go listen to it. Very different topic. <laughs> so definitely listen to both today's episode and that one. But it is really an honor and a privilege, Rabbi Lanzo. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my honor and my privilege. So let's dive in. I really am always really curious to hear about the background of people who work in the nonprofit sector and then specifically how they got there. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Happy to share. Um, so I, I, I was just thinking about this question, I think yesterday. Like, how did I get into non-for-profit? And like, did I ever see myself doing this? And like, it toggled the memory as a little child. I grew up in Cleveland and my mother was just, still is a huge today because it's a very special, righteous woman. And she started an organization to help Cleveland's needy and the poor. And I mean, she like literally started it out of like my kitchen and our backyard and soliciting funds for people that she knew for people who need, were needy. And that little tiny organization, which I didn't realize was an organization. I just thought that most people do that. Today is a multi-million dollar organization, which literally is saving the face of so many of Cleveland's Jewish poor. And so I guess I grew up in a not-for-profit, just not knowing that. But to fast forward a little bit, I kind of went through the traditional yeshiva system, you know, going to yeshiva in America, then going to yeshiva in Israel. And, and I'm learning in Israel and some guy approaches me and says to me, I think you're the right guy to reach out and to educate even, I guess you could say, people that are not in the world that you were brought up in. And an interesting journey starts with this organization called Nair Aleph, which trained future leaders and educators to go out to the diaspora and outside of Eretz Yisrael and to kind of educate people who may not have had the chance of connecting with their roots. And in 2000, myself and my wife, we moved back to, to New Jersey and we started working for the Lakewood Yeshiva, BMG, for their outreach or cure organization, which I know is a big, like, you know, showstopper, if you want to call that. You mean BMG as like, it has like a, an outreach organization. Yes, they do. They don't necessarily like, you know, have podcasts about it. They don't have podcasts about anything, but like That's certainly true. don't have podcasts about that. And um, I started working in a town that I'd never heard of before called East Brunswick, New Jersey, which is a lovely, lovely town, suburban town with a lot of professionals and a beautiful Jewish community. And I started teaching Torah there. And it's interesting that initially when I first went out to when the yeshiva sat, he was just like establish, build something, like grassroots connect with as many people as you can, make classes and programs and all kinds of cool things. And let's see what you can do with it. And, and they seeded it. So I had zero fundraising responsibilities, literally. You know, it was just like, here's a, here's a you know, blank check. Not literally, but you know, there were some checks. Was. And like, <laughs> yeah, I wish. But do your thing, you know? And we did it. And we made these amazing barbecues and we made holiday parties and beginner services on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Actually, our first, you know, beginner Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur Service was 9-11, the year of 9-11. And that was wow. totally a different level, totally a different level. I just, I don't, I don't know if this is the right form, but I remember like when I got up there to speak, and we're speaking about the sound of me, who will live and who will die. You didn't have to say anything. You just have to say those two words. And the place was like a basket case because everyone realized like how life is and how transient life is and how precious life is. So I had a lot of really beautiful moments. And for a bunch of years, it was just like, Let's build and let's build and let's grow. And we did. And we were so successful with tons of Seattle, the Shemite, hundreds and hundreds of families kind of started viewing Torah Links, which was the name of the organization, as their Jewish home away from home. And then like all good things, 
you know, the conversation starts and you guys are doing great, but like, you gotta, the best way to build, you know, that conversation, like the best way to really like, buy is to have people invest with you financially and have them be your partners. So it's for your benefit. I don't know if you've ever heard that conversation, but a yeah. lot of people, it's, it's true. You just don't like hearing it, you know? And they were right. And I remember, I don't know how many years ago, I think 19 years ago, we did our first big fundraiser. We did a beautiful dinner with great honorees and it was snowed out. Like, wow. that was like my first, that was like my first, you know, into, um, I'm sorry, for, you know, foray into like, into fundraising. Oh boy. But I realized that Hashem runs the world and not us. We rescheduled the dinner and it was way more successful than the anticipated. I think everyone just felt so bad for us. So they're like, you know, I got to come and I got to bring my friends and maybe I should up my donation by a third or by 50%, you know, and it was a beautiful dinner. And I remember walking out of there and saying, I hate fundraising because I don't like asking people for money. But I love when people partner with you and when they buy in and they feel like they're building something together. And on the contrary, it was true. When they invest with you, they're that much more invested in every other area. And thus began, you know, the responsibility of really building an organization, both fiscally, also, you know, planning and getting the right people to buy in. And we did that very successfully um, for a bunch of years. And but we were doing it like we had a minute in my house which is really convenient. You can just roll out of bed into Shabbos. Like that part's awesome. But for almost, I don't know, close to 10 years, we had davening every Shabbos in my house. And sometimes we had Shabbatones in my house because our center wasn't within walking distance. We had meals with, you know, 100 and 200 people just in our own home. So that's not for profit and it's best, you know? That's not for profit life. Profit. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you something really cool. One, I remember like one Shabbatone, we had an amazing guest speaker and like a lot of last minuteers and like, so much food and so many people literally around our whole first floor, which is like a massive bunch of people all coming together. We had way over a hundred people for Friday night dinner. And like, at some point me and my wife were like, we don't have a seat. Oh God. So we didn't have a seat. Wow. Like halfway through the meal, when the speaker starts speaking, we took our baby's high chair and we've put on the high chair, a bottle of wine and a, a kiddish cup and two challahs. And we made kiddish and we had some challah. And that was all we ate. And then at the end of the meal, we just like plopped on the couch and we like ate leftover Kogel and schnitzel, you know? That's, I think when you're, I'm just saying this because I think when you're bought in to what you're doing, it's not just like a non-for-profit, it's very profitable. It kind of becomes your life. And maybe it's not a profitable, you know, ent entity if you want to call it that. But like the same way when you wake up every morning and you love your job, regardless of what you're doing, it's not a job, it's a labor of love. That's kind of how we viewed what we were doing. So even when we have to do the uncomfortable, uncomfortable things, like asking people for money or for time, which I know we're going to talk about soon, like it wasn't geschmack like they say, but at the same time, it was necessary and we understood what we were doing. So I know I'm, I'm talking a lot and you could cut it in with questions, but I'm trying to build like where we came from. This is great. I think it's really important to understand, you know, when someone has their formal title and the formal organization that they work for that has resources and it looks all... It looks so great and easy on the outside, but I know that every person who's in one of those roles, there was a path to get there. So I'm always very interested in that part of it as well. Okay, fantastic. So by the time we got to like 2012, 2013, we had outgrown our place. So we needed something that was within walking distance. My family needed their first floor back. And we, with a series of incredible siyata, the Shemaya, it's like, that should be a podcast in and of its own. Just all the crazy times that Hashem just like, I got you, I got your back. We got an old building from the township in the most prime location. The township had bought it from the Board of Ed. 
And then they put it up for a silent bid because of a lot of unfortunate circumstances. And we were the only bidder. We bought wow. a very beautiful piece of land. It had an old building on it, but for $375,000. Wow. In Lakewood, you can't get a garage for that. <laughs> and we bought it and we wow. bought it. We've been fundraising kind of in the background and putting away some money in the earlier years. So we were able to buy it with basically no debt. And then we embarked upon a, a fundraising campaign, which ultimately turned into a $3 million campaign. And I learned a lot about building. I think I could probably go into construction. I know a lot about building and permits and steel and concrete and all kinds of really cool things and finishes and all kinds of very, very wonderful things. And a lot of volunteers, a lot of volunteers. We could never, ever have done it without our volunteers. I, in Brisk, they never taught me, you know, anything about building or architecture or design. They also didn't teach me how to deal with these people. <laughs> everything I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, everything really came together in a beautiful way. And like, I'm really proud to say that within 12 months of the completion, we were debt-free, which wow. is almost an unheard of in the not-for-profit world. And we were able to just focus all our fundraising, our partnerships, and building out the program and getting more people involved and using that building that we literally put our blood, sweat, and tears into for what we really needed to use it for. So that's like, I think that's one of my most proudest feathers in my caps. My students would say, Rabbi, you're flexing. It's okay. You're a lot of flex sometimes that we really, um, we were able to build a building and walk out of it debt-free. I mean, my building committee, I remember when I sent that final email and I'm like, guys, you're not going to believe it. We just paid off our final payment. And like, it was just like shock emojis. There was like no way for them even to respond. Uh, that's so, incredible. And so we did that like chill plus years ago. And then for personal reason, reasons, my family and other things, we decided to pivot and move back into quote unquote mainstream society. And we moved into Lakewood where we had lived for a short period of time. It's a, it was a very different Lakewood, you know, very, very different Lakewood. And it was interesting. Like everyone's asking me, what's going to be your next step? Because I'd been just, you know, directing this organization, rabbi and everything else, the chair mover, like all the different things that we do in non-for-profit. And I'd also been already in the modern Orthodox high school system for two decades. And like both of those were not real possibility. They were too far away. And just, I was not continuing my own community intending to be there. We need to hire someone else. And like, I'm like, I don't know. And I literally only had one phone call. And that was about the job that I took. I didn't look at any other jobs. This was, Hashem literally set the perfect job to me, which brings me to the here and the now. And that is I work for Olami. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Olami is a global organization that oversees and directs and funds in part over 300 outreach care of organizations for students and young professionals in the entire globe. So from Melbourne to Montreal and from Sydney to San Diego, it's across the entire world. And they are not all called Olami. They have many different names. Some are called Olami, some are not, but it's an incredible, incredible conglomerate. It's a massive organization with, an organ with a budget that's the high tens of millions. There's about 50,000 students and young professionals involved on a yearly basis. It's a really, really large, and beautiful and amazing organization. So it's kind of cool to go from being this tiny mom and pop in East Brunswick, New Jersey that no one ever heard of besides that it's exit nine on the turnpike to like being part of an organization that has hundreds and thousands of people um, just in the employee structure, if you want to call it that, you know, there's people working for the non-for-profit. Forget about the attendees and the participants. So that's where I am right now. And it's been a beautiful ride. And I think Hashem kind of 
gave me a stepping stone, which was understanding how to reach out, understanding how to partner with people and understanding how to talk to people and make important relationships. And then he says, okay, let's take it to the next level and let's globalize it a little bit more, which is where I am right now. So there, there are like so many different directions I can take this conversation. And based on the things that you just said, I'm going to stick to the topic, but I will say that I would love one day to sit down and have another conversation about this idea of an umbrella organization, bringing together all of the smaller organizations who are trying to do something amazing and giving them resources. And I, I just love that because work with a lot of small organizations in different areas who are doing the same thing. So I think that on its own could be a fascinating conversation, but I do want to dive into what I reached out to you about to discuss, which is this topic of working with volunteers. The seeds for this conversation really popped into my head. I would say a few years ago, I was speaking to someone who was very influential in, in the Jewish world. He just in, in, involved in many, many different organizations. And he was almost appalled at the idea of like hiring people for an organization versus using like only volunteers like that. That was something he felt very passionate about. And I was like flabbergasted. I was like, I think you really need both, but the important piece of it is to kind of know when. So I really, I think this is a really important conversation that there's so many, there's so many nuances that we can dive into, but let's back up because I know you said you work for Olami, which is an amazing organization. What is your official role there? So I'm the director of mentorship, which is an interesting topic because I don't think that many people I think everyone knows what mentorship is, but I don't know that they really know what it is. So let me explain kind of what I was hired to do and, and where it's evolved to what I'm doing now. So even though Olami touches about 50,000 beautiful Nishamas and tries to polish those gems, but it's a tiny little fraction of the amount of students and young professionals that are out there. Just to give you perspective, in Chicago alone, it's over 50,000 Jewish young professionals. Wow. So what do you do? You're limited in manpower. You're limited in resources. And even if you have a blank check, still everyone has nine to fives. There's only a certain amount of people that work in the world of Tira that it's, it's a very rigorous and all-encompassing job. And it's very difficult to maintain that. People burn out. People have larger families. People live in communities where they need enough opportunities and you can't do that on the campus or whatever community you're in. So an idea which was not mine after was surfaced after a tremendous amount of of research, and that is, let's try to empower your successful, um, thriving from professional, man and woman alike. And let's try to proposition them and ask them to take some level of responsibility for one student, for one young professional. Um, it's not a crazy ask. I think in our heart of hearts, we all wanna help other people. And it's incredibly attractive on both levels. We all know that when you give you get much, much more than the recipient. You get a feeling of, you know, self-fulfillment. And it also helps you strengthen your identity and rethink many of your priorities and your balance in your own life. And for the mentee, let's just, I'm going to take a random example. Let's say a kid by the name of David, who's 24 years old, just graduated from Penn. And now he's working for Goldman Sachs in the city and he's figuring out life, trying to balance a career, his relationships. Maybe he's thinking about you know, getting married in the next few years. Uh, his Judaism all of a sudden is becoming something a little bit more important than because he's trying to create his identity. I know Goldman Sachs sounds Jewish, but it doesn't mean to say he's necessarily on the Jewish network or Jewish infrastructure. So our goal would be to try to find a successful person, let's say in investment banking. It doesn't have to be, but we find that there's a commonality, you know, when you, when you have a similar line of work. And especially if I could find someone in Goldman Sachs, which has many strong people working there, I'd say, listen, my friend, you know, there's a great kid who just started working. He just got a locker and a desk in a cubicle. 
but you have a beautiful office on the eighth floor and you made your way through this. And he's interested in having conversations with you, not about career only, because I think it's a really important distinction, but about life. Now, life includes making a living. It also includes balancing your personal life and your professional life. And for our mentors, every single one of them, it also includes balancing your spiritual life. And we give the student or the young professional an opportunity to have short conversations of a half hour each on Zoom, but preferably we do ask them to try to meet in person at least twice. And we propose them to do 10 sessions, 10 interactions with the mentee and to try to build a personal relationship and give them guidance. And like I said before, of those 10, two of them should try to be in person. So for example, Let's say I would try to find somebody in the five towns who works in Goldman Sachs. So that just happens to be a good place to look. There's so many incredibly successful professionals and the students living in the city. So the guy's working in Goldman Sachs anyway, so they'll have a lunch one day. Or he'll invite this, this, this young fellow upstairs to his office and say, I want to introduce you to the different people on this floor, which is really cool up here. Do they introduce themselves as representing Olami, like, or is it more like subtle? So the way it works is that all these students and young professionals, at least until literally this month, have already been involved with different uh, partner organizations. Okay. So Olami or whatever they may be called. And the Makari or the rabbi, the Rebetzin, or even the, you know, the layperson who's involved with that student will say, I have a great program called mentorship. Would you be interested in a mentor in a similar field that you're in just to talk have conversations about life? And it's really, really attractive. You know, I think a lot of young professionals and students are looking for guidance and no one's giving it to them. And it's a great opportunity to pick the brain of somebody who's 10, 15, 20 years ahead of you and did it successfully. They were you, you know, two decades ago and now, or even less. And, and now they, they'd love to give back and share, you know, their mistakes and their successes and how they got to where they are. And it's been, it's been incredible. I, I had this list of writing like a curriculum to help make those conversations, A, to, you know, fast track the personal relationship, but then to deepen the conversations and make them more meaningful. And they talk about like all kinds, like priorities, and they talk about values and choices, which is so important to a young professional and an older professional. And beautiful relationships ensue. We're, we're trying to onboard them for a second 10 session. And we're almost at 80% retention. Wow. That's how powerful it is from both ends. And by the way, I know there's going to be your next question, so I'll preempt it. We don't pay any of the volunteers. There you go. That was... <laughs> That was, that was coming up very shortly. So before we get into that, I just want to understand your role because obviously I'm, the numbers are probably way too large for you to have a direct hand in. So when you say you're the director, what does that actually mean? That's a very good question. When I first came on, it was like two guys in a truck. Me, myself, and Rabbi David Markowitz, who's really the director of Olami, but this was like a very important thing. And let's figure it out. And we literally cast the large web and like they say, it's called green light picking. You just try, you try to get everything and anything together and let's see what happens. And for the first year, you know, we built our team. So I worked together with a woman by the name of SD Lab, who's an incredibly talented person. I know SD Lab. We work together so, in High Lifeline. <laughs> so she is the, uh, she's the project manager and she's amazing. And we've hired a number of mentorship coordinators to manage those relationships across North America. I just want to say, like, I'm right now focused predominantly on North America, England, um, but those are the places that, I'm focused on the day-to-day, but I'm inter- Tiny, tiny little, tiny little piece of land. Yeah, it's nothing. Um, But I'm interfacing with Latin America, with Israel, which has an incredibly successful mentorship program called Achim Lanefesh, and many, many other places in the world. But we have a team right now, and we need, we actually probably need to hire more because it's growing so fast. 
but it's it's a complex now. It's there's a lot of systems and there's and it's just something I'm not good at. And you know, and it's figuring out a lot of different moving pieces and putting them all together. So it became it started as a nice idea, but it snowballed where as this past season we had almost 700 students that were involved. So seven hundred that's that's fourteen hundred relationships that need to be managed. Because wow. we follow up with the mentors, we follow up with the mentees. And if you layer into that, that there was a makar of a rabbi or a rabbit and somebody else, so it's really an additional, it's 2,100 relationships. Well, not really, because, you know, many of them have 20, 30 students that they have a kesha to, but it's a lot of relationships that need to be managed and a lot of people that need to be handled. And there's always problems and issues. I work together with a woman by the name of Jordana Barakov, who is also a very talented person. And she like, she kind of focuses on, you know, the women mentors. I focus more on the men mentor, you know, the male mentors. And I also focus on coordination and design, the educational piece and a whole lot of different moving pieces. So it's been a, it's been a fun run and very different than what I did, you know, prior to this, but Shem gives you opportunities and you got to run with them. Amazing. That, that sounds really incredible. So I want to like really get into this topic of volunteers because I think that there are, first of all, I think the decision of like taking a step back, if someone is working in a nonprofit and they need manpower and there are some resources to hire, but then there are people who are passionate and will be volunteers. Like, how do you make that determination of what, where the, the paid employees should come in, where volunteers can come in and how do you manage that line? So that's a really excellent question. I think that is the pivotal question when it comes to volunteers. Before I answer that question, I just want to share with you that this past job, I spoke at an organization called Kesher and Afshi. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but yes. Probably one of the most beautiful organizations. It, it's a support system for parents of struggling children. Kesha Nafshi, the Shabbaton probably had, I don't know, 500, 400 couples. So it was a very large Shabbaton. Kesha Nafshi, to the best of my awareness, does not have a single paycheck. Every single person, from the person that runs the organization to the party planners to the logistics, no one gets a paycheck. And the reason I'm saying this is because every uh, volunteer is a parent. So there's tremendous buy-in there. They see the value. They've come. They've been part of it. They need the support system. So they're willing to throw in their heart and their soul in a way that I don't think they would do in an organization such as Olami, which is the part the organization I'm part of. Now, I know you speak about Kai Lifeline. Kai Lifeline would be another good example. If you could put together an army of parents who've had children who were ill and benefited from Kai Lifeline the buy-in will be through the roof and the amount of time and resources that they're willing to invest will obviously be much more. I think for your regular person, if the ask is too big, either they're going to say yes and not follow through or they're going to say no. But if the ask is reasonable and you sell it that there's an ups, a personal upside and it works, which is another really important caveat, they feel like gaining and they feel value, then you can retain those volunteers. And what's really cool is that even many of the mentors who are not continuing with their mentee because the mentee pulled out because they got a job or they're too busy, they want to do it again. The majority of them want to do it again. So the formula of how much you're asking from them versus how much meaning they're getting, I think ultimately is what helps you retain the volunteers. So I want to understand, are you, are you suggesting that the first step be to try and find the volunteers? that maybe that it's a reasonable ask and that they will be able to gain meaningfully before, let's say, exploring whether it should be a paid position? So I think if it's a larger position, there's very few people that will take a, you know, like a, like a, a part-time position or even a part-time. I think four hours a day, you'd be hard-pressed. Unless you find 
like one of these hidden tzaddikim. Most people, or someone who's really wealthy and retired and bored, you know, or, or really wealthy and not retired and bored. Um, so, you know, you're not going to find somebody to have a regular position. Maybe Kesher Nafshi is an, ex- is, is an exception because people are so passionate. And I think even being the volunteer, it's catharsic and it kind of helps you feel and build and it just, it creates a certain sense of hope that your child will latch onto some of that positive energy, which is, it does. But in your standard system, you're not going to, I don't think, and again, I'm, I'm just limited in my last two years, but I've talked to hundreds of volunteers, hundreds and hundreds. I don't think they'd be willing to do something that's the huge lift. I think half an hour, which is what we created, is just the right half hour a week. Almost every person can find a half an hour a week. I'll just share with you something, you know, like a, an anecdote. So somebody mentioned a friend of theirs who, which by the way, is another part of the conversation, how you expand and how you scale. But before we get to that, somebody mentioned a friend of theirs who is a very successful attorney in a finance company and said he would be a great mentor. So I called the guy up. Um, we spoke at 11 o'clock while he was still in his office in the city, eating his dinner for a reserve cup. And because he does have some perks when you have no life, they at least give you food. And he, um, and we talked and we talked and I don't really have half an hour a week. And like at the end of the conversation, he goes, you know what? I'm going to make a half an hour. You know, if something else has to give, something else has to give and I'm going to make it happen. So I say this because this was really a person who struggled for time. But a half hour a week was something that in the recesses of his neshama, he was capable of creating. And the, the, the uh, follow-up to the, you know, the postscript in the story is we did an event where we brought mentors and mentees together, which is a really cool thing to do because very empowering across the board. Oh, you do it? And you also have a chance to build on the energy and the wave. He just sat there for like two hours. And like at some point I said to one of the friends, I'm like, I thought he only has a half hour a week. He goes, he only has a half hour a week for the things he doesn't love to do. But he obviously is loving this. So exactly. he'll give more time, um, which is, I think, another important thing to think about. If you can create enough of a value, then they'll, people will even volunteer more. And they'll, they won't just volunteer time-wise, they'll also volunteer resources, like their home, or pay for an event, or take out students to a really nice restaurant to give them a beautiful time, which is not something that they would have done before they tasted the sweet waters of giving, you know? So... I hope I answered your question, but I think. Yeah, it's no, and actually, I think this makes a lot of sense. Like the, the point is, is that you have to be asking something that will provide meaning to their life and is a reasonable ask within the confines of their life. And what that looks like for each person may be a little bit different. And I think part of the role that you're in and someone who's in a similar role is to kind of like figure out where that line is and maybe to push it a little bit over time, because as they get more and more invested, that line of like what that time they find all of a sudden can grow. So I think that's a really important point. So the scale that you just brought up, that's really important to me. How do you scale it and how do you keep control over it? I think you brought up when we initially spoke this idea of like accountability. How do you ask for accountability from hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who are just giving of their time, but you also need to know that, you know, you're making an impact. So I think what's really important to understand is that one of the ways to get people to be accountable to anything is personal relationship and respect. I try, and now it's getting harder and harder because we're scaling so much, to really that before the mentor comes on board and before they're introduced, our mentorship coordinator, like one of the many, ment- we have a bunch of mentors, of course, before they in- introduce them and they show them the platform because we have a cool platform and we even have like a little social media type of thing just internally for all the mentors and mentees, which itself is a very cool thing. Um, I try to have like a night conversation with them. I, you know, I, want, I try to be the one, if I can, to seal the deal. And we'll talk about how we got that person in, in a moment, but I think this is a very important point, which is that, you have to try even in the first conversation with them to establish some type of personal 
you know, relationship, a commonality. And you have to ask Hashem that the conversation should go nicely and smoothly. Because I think once it was a geschmack, an enjoyable conversation, and they kind of feel your passion about what you're doing, then when you follow up, they're like, oh, that was cool. I would like to talk to this person again. So having a second conversation is, is, is a natural thing. In addition to that, this is like one of the most interesting psychological phenomena that I've come across. I could get a fellow who's 45 years old that's a managing partner at a hedge fund, and he has no problem sitting with a billionaire and propositioning him to seed a project that they're doing or to get him to buy into a mutual fund, but he's petrified about meeting with the secular kid who just graduated from NYU. You could run circles about that guy, but what he's a little nervous about is that maybe the questions that he's going to ask about Yiddishkeit or maybe even about his personal life will be difficult questions to answer. And it's really interesting to see that. And this, I think, also adds another layer to the follow-up. Many of them will be like, ah, I never did this before. Like, and they, I'm like, I got you. I'll hold your hand. We'll, we'll touch base. I have the resources. Let's talk it through. So after your first conversation, second conversation, let's circle back and see how it went. So right away, I'm building into the conversation an opportunity for another conversation. And right away, I'm building into the conversation an opportunity for oversight. So how many times did you guys meet and how's it going? Almost everybody responds. And if they don't respond to the mentorship coordinator, which also reaches out, then ultimately when, I guess having an RABBI in front of your name also is a little bit helpful. I don't know, not for certain people. Um, and you put everything together. Most people are pretty... They're pretty uh, accessible and they follow up in a very, very nice way, especially if it's going well. They want to share, you know, when we're, we're happy and we have a meaningful something or other going on in our life. We love to share it with the people that appreciate, you know, what we're having. So all in all, it hasn't been crazy to follow up. It's a huge workload because it's so many people to follow up with. But Hashem was really kind and he created something called WhatsApp. For some reason, he got the Jews up on WhatsApp. Yes, um, WhatsApp is I think before you move into the five counts, for example, you need to have a WhatsApp account that they just don't let you in. Um, yeah, or you're like, your kids won't make it to school. Like, it's just basically that, that, runs your life. That's at correct. This state. Yeah, the application to most schools in the, in the greater tri-state area, besides perhaps Lakewood and Muncie and stuff, are on WhatsApp. Line. So like, you know, the link is there. So that's a great way to communicate. And, you know, certain people hate voice notes. Voice notes work really well. And success stories work really well, you know, share with me something that really nice or a moment in the conversation. And if we have the time and the bandwidth, and then we could follow up pretty well, at least now. Our big challenge is how we, how we scale now. We're, we're trying to almost triple over the next 12 months. Wow, that's um, ambitious. So we're, we're, yeah, we're working on, I don't know, between 1,000 and 2,000, you know, mentorships. And that poses a lot of challenges, logistical challenges, but like what you were going to say for scaling for mentors, how do you get more mentors? So I'm going to take a step back and tell you how we got our first cohort of mentors, at least for the season that we're part of, you know, the, the program, the way it is right now. And that is, this is not my idea. I'm just, I'm just trying to be, I'm just a decent implementer, but I'm not a great, you know, creator. And Robert David Markowitz, who I work with, he thought of this incredible idea called mentor ambassadors. So let's say, for example, we go to a city like Houston, which we don't have anyone by. That's why I'm choosing Houston. Okay. And um, we have a care of organization and there's a great guy there, a rabbi, a, wo a woman who's doing amazing, they're killing it. And we're like, we want to build mentors, but we don't want you to have the full load to find all the mentors. Who's a man or a woman or preferably both 
who's popular, who, you know, everyone loves, who's successful. And can we meet with them? And we flew, we'd fly down to Houston. You can't imagine how much we flew in the last year. And we'd sit in a restaurant or in someone's house in a coffee shop. And we'd talk to the Makari and his, or his wife or whoever it is and this ambassador. And we'd sell them our mission and say, we need you to take a leadership position. And that's a little bit more of a list than a half hour a week. A, we want you to do that half hour a week so you understand what it's about. But B, we want you to open your Rolodex. Do you know what a Rolodex is? Yes, yes. I am still of that generation. <laughs> yes. Okay. And, My kids would have no we, idea. Not even a clue. Like, they'd be like, maybe they'd be like, is that a watch? That's probably what they would have. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good one. I think that's the closest I'd ever get to a Rolex, by the way, is a Rolodex. <laughs> <Just like. laughs> right now, that's vintage. Um, that's vintage. So they were in the, in the places that it worked, it was unbelievable. Like we have certain mentor ambassadors who literally got every single mentor. And because they were, you know, people who had good social skills and were successful professionally and were popular, it became a thing. Like the cool people or the successful people um, or the giving people. So that was amazing and a huge, huge lift on our behalf that we didn't have to be busy or worry with. I don't know if you want to know, but I could tell you how we empowered them to sell it further. Is that something you want to know? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this, is, so this is incredibly brilliant and incredibly cool. Again, not my brainchild. So what we did was we interviewed every single mentee before we even you know, went out to try to propose to mentors. We compiled a profile on those mentees, like a two-page profile with a picture of them in their words why they want a little bit about their journey. And then we added our own notes to that profile. So when we sat down with the mentor ambassador, we literally had a stack of, of profiles that they could look through. This is where he is professionally. This is where she is you know, in life right now. This is what she likes to ski. He likes to play video games. I think that's probably one guy. You know, let's find the video gaming by, by a bus or woman for this particular student. So that right away is very powerful. But what we did was we created like a, like a little, you know, WhatsApp JPEG or whatever it is with a picture of that men, of the mentee, like maybe one or two lines about them that said on it, Jacob is looking for a mentor and we couldn't think of anyone better than you. So the mentor ambassador messages his friend, hey, David, just had this incredible meeting. There's a lot of great students and young professionals in our community. And you, I think, are the perfect guy for this student. All of a sudden, Shalom, who's the mentor, is like, wow, I, maybe I am the only guy. And when you propose to somebody and you say, you're the one that can make the difference. And we know this already. Very different. Like, would you like to perhaps? Yeah, that's very hard to say no to. I hear that. Correct. Correct. And I'll tell you something beautiful about Claudia Shalom. It's, it just it makes me so proud to, you know, to, to be a Jew. There's probably some hashtag for that. I just don't know what it is. Hashtag but, proud to be a Jew. We'll start it right now. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. It happened here. Sparks of, the na- Sparks of the nation or something like that. I think it's fair to say that more than 90% of the mentors that we spoke to said yes. Wow. Almost nobody said no. They just said, not now. I have too much going on in my personal life, in my professional life. I just started a new job. We yeah. just moved. In the interest of full disclosure... I was approached this year. I don't know to what extent to be involved, but it was our Pesach. So I do okay. remember saying, I love the idea. 
any other time of the year would be would be great. So that's well, an that's important a, point. That's a good Maybe point. Maybe just you not have, reach them at the right time. Don't call somebody when they're on vacation with their kids or they're on home trying to figure out what to do with their family. They don't want to talk to you and they don't think they have any time in their life. But, you know, call them on a Sunday afternoon or, or, or what I do is I don't usually call the first time. I'll write like a three-line, you know, WhatsApp message that says, hi, my name is Rabbi Landau. I got your name from Jacob Cohn and he, he thought it would be great for me to talk to you. I'm going to leave a voice note. Yeah, low you pressure. Know, my, yeah, low pressure. And if it's interesting to you, you know, could we talk further? Almost everybody says, sure, let's have a conversation. Almost everybody. But that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody else. I just find that that works. I don't know. It works. I want to go back a second to what you, you mentioned briefly about people being like a little bit afraid to have that conversation. I think that's very applicable to all kinds of organizations. Let's say, you know, someone volunteer in a hospital. I don't know how to speak to someone in the hospital. I don't know the right thing to say. So I think that's very important. I'm laughing in my head. I don't know if this is like the, the time and place to kind of like criticize like based Yaakov education, but I related to that when you said that because I went through 14 years of it and I don't know if I'm prepared to speak to someone who has big questions. You know, that's, that's, that's a big conversation. So I think to add to like this list that we're building now, like what makes this, you know, what makes a volunteer successful is arming them, making them feel confident that they can answer the questions that they have what they need to the role. I would assume that's probably a big part of what you do as well. 100%. I mean, the fact when I have a conversation, I tell the person, you don't have to make it up each time. We have amazing resources. And in season one, when I wrote resources, I wrote like three one-pagers for the three different types of people out there, like the logical, pragmatic, uh, the practical, and the inspirational. So you as a mentor can take five minutes before and look for two or three things that you think as you're getting to know yourself and your mentee, it's a good show, you know, could be so you're not making up the conversation. You don't have to be worried that they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to come out of left field and ask you like, you know, why do, why do good th bad things happen to, to good people and good things happen to bad people? Most people, by the way, don't wake up in the morning. They're like, Ooh, what am I going to ask my mentor today? Like free will versus determinism or tzaddik morality? <laughs> or why did the Holocaust happen? Why is, why why is there about? a God? Yeah. <laughs> is there a God? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Most people think will ask that question. They don't view their mentor. This is another interesting thing. They don't view them as their rabbi or rebbitson. They view them as a person. And we are a person like you, for example. You're a really successful life professional because you've had life. You live life and you have many moving pieces and you're keeping all the balls in the air at the same time. That's something that I think you're, you'd probably be comfortable in sharing. And that's really what the mentee is looking like. With that being said, for most functional from people, Everything they do has some Yiddishkeit component to it. So that's where the beauty unfolds, where, you know, I wake up in the morning, I know I have a crazy day, and I'm like, Hashem, just help me get through today. That's powerful when a student hears that. Or when somebody shares that, you know, even though I struggled my first 10 years, I never missed giving nicer once. And I think that's part of my success. That's a really powerful thing. Or I don't care if I had to live in a one-bedroom apartment, I would always keep my kids in yeshiva and pay yeshiva tuition because that's an investment in my eternity. So like these are really powerful things that you don't have to be a professional, quote, unquote, professional. You just have to be a functional Jew. That's important. I, I get that. So to what extent do you apply any kind of formal like metrics or tracking procedures to a volunteer base, which I guess is in, in compared to, let's say, an employee is a little bit of a more informal workforce. And But we brought up the accountability piece. So if there's going to be accountability, you have to be tracking something. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So 
I personally, this is just like I tell my students, it's LOL, it's Landau on life. I don't like the system that we're using. We're using Monday right now. I like to say everyone hates Mondays, but we're using Monday. I know. I don't know why they came up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like really bad marketing. Call it Friday. I'm sure they had a, they had a story, but yeah. I'm sure they do. Maybe the guy's name is Monday, you know? So, so bottom line is we use Monday and we use it very, very, it's very well thought out and very, we have a bunch of people on our team that are very good at systems and every student's name is there. The notes are there, the follow-up, the amount of time they were followed up with questions, challenges. And as soon as there's an issue, automatically it tags the right person who needs to reach out, who could then update the system. So we're using Monday and we're using it pretty successfully. I think we're probably one day going to graduate at the Salesforce because it's, it's just much more powerful, but we do have a very real system that I'm not going to say we're perfect at, but it's definitely, it's there and there's a, and everybody sees it. So there's, there's enough of a scope on, you know, within this system. And that's what we're using right now to try to follow up in a substantial way. Um, definitely things are falling through the cracks, but they always do and probably always will. But every day we tighten it a little bit more. Do the volunteers have like a structure of when they're supposed to re- report back to you? Like where's the information coming from? They do not have any, you know, responsibility. I will tell you that for our first cohort, and we're still flushing it out, we created, uh, there's, a, there's a system online called, you know, like one of these systems called Graduate. And Graduate was created to assist colleges in following up with their alumni. And it's, it's actually created, it's an Israeli company that created it, like every decent app out there. And um, <laughs> the students sign up, as do the mentors. And it has, live, it has like a live post or live feed, which is very cool. And we required students to post at least four times that they met. And then they get, you know, medals, awards, you know, medallions, et cetera, et cetera, which pushes them further. There was no value to those medallions. But, you know, they, you, I guess, boasting. But we were able to see from the student where they were holding. Mm. So that automatic, it, it's much better to follow up with the student than the mentor because it's, a mentor doesn't want to hear from you every two minutes. But the students... Right, you can't put too much pressure on someone who's already, I guess, going above and beyond. Co- correct. So you always have that angle. But you do need to follow up with the mentor, A, because they need hand-holding and follow-up. Because sometimes the student gives up and they're like, I tried my mentor three times. He's probably just busy. He'll get back to me whenever... And as soon as you message or call the mentor, they're like, oh my gosh, he left me three messages. I feel so terrible. I'm like, don't worry about it. Right now, before we hang up, message him and let's figure out the next time you guys could get together. Um, I want to add another really important component to this because it sounds almost like pie in the sky, this whole initiative. And we're trying to get away. We're trying to get into pie in the sky, but it wasn't pie in the sky for the first two years. We incentivize, not the mentors, but the mentees. If you were part of our season one, you became eligible to a one-week trip to Spain wow. with 700 students and young professionals from the entire globe. An amazing one-week um, event, which we had, which was off the charts, where we toured. I mean, we brought in professional actors from New York to reenact scenes of 1400 Spain. We had like a big sandwich with 1200 people in old Toledo as the sun is setting where we learned some of the tire of those, the rush and, you know, people like him in the place that he walked. And as the sun is setting and everyone finishes learning, you turn around and there's a, like a Jakob, live Jakob Schwetti concert. So it, there was a great incentive. The students did have to pay in part to come to this, 
but it incentivized the mentees to do mentorship. What's really cool is that season two for returning participants doesn't have that carrot. I just want to interject how interesting it is. You call it seasons. Like, talk to me about that. Like, what what is the season? Is it like a time of year? Is it like, um, does it end and then you restart? So, so great question. No. So what, what it is, is we, we tried to kick off all the mentorships by the end of December, early January, and they met for 10 times all the way leading up to May when we had our trip. That was one of the requirements that you have to meet 10 times in order to be, or a certain amount of times, but ultimately 10 times to be trip, trip eligible. Those 10 sessions are season, those 10 sessions are over. And that was what we called season one, which concluded with the trip to Spain. We're not really officially starting the next season for both returning mentees and new mentees until September. So we're calling that season two. Now, we're very much encouraging those that are returning to continue meeting and continue, you know, having regular conversations. But like, for example, the resources of 10 sessions are not going to be there until season two, you know, the formal resources. I love Um, that. The events, we seed, we do seed opportunities to have community events where the mentors and mentees get together, we do give them a certain amount of incentive, financial incentive. Those won't start until September. I love the whole idea of kind of like putting some kind of brackets around each time you do it because it gives you the opportunity a little bit to evolve, to take a fresh approach. It's not this just like ongoing, endless thing. You press play and you just kind of hard to like stop at that point. I think that's really interesting. Very like fresh. I think it's very important. It's also, it's also good for us because even in our minds, it gives us like a box to kind of the yeah. systems for the, for season one are in this box and let's open another box. We could copy and paste a lot from box one, but we'll manage it differently. And I'll add, and I think this is like some, which I think you'll be fascinated by. We also incentivize more empowered, the returning mentees to bring their friends on for cohort two. So we had contests who could bring, sign up the most students for season number two, uh, which branch or location could bring, you know, those. And we incentivize both the local communities and the individuals to try to help us. And we have a massive list of people that no one ever heard of, not the organization, local organizations or us of new students that are coming on now that want mentors, which is great because it's very empowering to the Makari to have a whole new batch of people that they never, ever got involved with. It's also very refreshing to see that a mentee finds enough value that they are comfortable selling it further. So it's almost like getting volunteers, but like they're not volunteers, they're mentees, but it's using a similar structure like our mentor ambassadors, or I didn't answer your question before. It's going to our returning mentors who are coming on for season two and asking them to recommend three or four friends. That's going to ultimately be, I think, the way that we scale and we build a much larger mentorship community. So it all sounds absolutely amazing. And I think what you're doing is incredible. But for the purposes of this podcast, I like to be very, very real. So part of that conversation is it's never easy. I know it's never easy. So what are the challenges? What's the, the big challenge when you're working with a group of volunteers, especially at this scale? Like what would you identify as like your number one challenge? So I think our initial biggest challenge is matching them properly. We don't really know the mentor. We don't really know the mentee. And like I told you before, that if there's meaning and there's connection, volunteer retention is much easier. So if we get it wrong the first time, 
it's much harder to ask that volunteer to try it again. So, you know, I think the Gemara says that this, this Roman woman asked one of the rabbis, like, you know, what does Hashem do all the time? And he says, he just makes shaduchim. He just makes matches. And she like laughed at it. And she goes, I could do that. And she got like a thousand male servants and a thousand female servants and put them together and tried to match them up. And the result was bedlam and a mosh pit and all kinds of crazy stuff. And on a certain level, it's really hard. And we dive in a lot that Hashem, and he's been incredible. Like it, it doesn't even make sense logically, but the amount of complaint that we've had from mentees and mentors in the past season are, you could count them on two hands. Wow. So it's really crazy, but that's a big, big challenge, you know, right away. Number two is follow-up, even though I painted a, a rosy picture and it is pretty rosy, but not everyone responds and it's hard. It's a drag for everyone involved. No one wants to be pressured. So if someone doesn't respond, so you, you nudge them once and you nudge them twice, they nudge them again, they're a volunteer. Like there's no accountability, like you said. So it, you could hit them from a lot of different places. You could have the mentee hit them, very compelling you know, outreach. You could have your ambassador hit them because they're the one that brought them on in the first place. You could have the rabbi or the Rebbitson hit them. There's a relationship because they live in the same community. But ultimately, if a person motivated enough or just too busy, sometimes they can go AWOL. And that's a very, very big challenge. You know, so what do you do? You have a mentee who is excited or more than that, was motivated to come because they can go to Spain. And now their mentor is not there and they're panicking. What do you mean? I, I got my passport and I paid money towards this and am I going to be eligible? And of course we work with everyone to try to make things work. But those are, those are challenges. I think like also, even though maybe other people on our team wouldn't say this, I think the system needs to be a little bit more user-friendly. And I have a hard time with money because I like seeing things, you know, in the, in the macro. And Monday's a very micro-based, you know, system. So yes, I despise all the project management. I think I've tried all of them and I <laughs> despise all of them. But sometimes, you know, you need them. You need to make it work for you. Personally, I think the best system that's out there is free and it's called Excel. But that's just, you know, that's at least me. Google Sheets, at least. <laughs> or Google Sheets. If you're going to go that route. But yeah, no, I mean, I, there are some pros. I use Google Sheets a lot for myself. When you're working with a team, it's much harder to collaborate. But yeah, user-friendly. Very, very yeah, amazing. So before, I think there was a lot of really, really important things that you mentioned. So I'm, I'm really happy we covered this. Before we sign off, any like particular favorite story that you would want to share about anything related to what we've been talking to? Got a lot of great mentorship stories, like sure you crazy <laughs> off the charts story. I'll share just one, and it's not the best. It's just kind of the one that I thought about yesterday because somebody mentioned the mentor. So, you know, growing up in East Brunswick, like growing up in East Brunswick, being, I did grow up a lot there, but like being around in East Brunswick, I had the opportunity to guess a lot of great people. And there's one guy whose name is Steve, I'm not going to say his last name, who lives in the community and we became, you know, very good friends. He, he didn't belong, quote unquote, to my organization, he was part of the firm community, but we were very good friends. And he moved eventually to TMAC and, and kind of retired from a very successful, you know, he was a partner at a very large accounting firm. And he's still, you know, he's a professor now and he does like stuff on the side. But, and I had a, a young professional who was an accountant in a large firm who was looking for a mentor. And like it popped into my head randomly, maybe Steve would be the right guy for this guy. So I call Steve and he's like, me? A mentor, you know, whatever. And, and he's like, he's a very cute guy. He's like, you know, if it's an accounting, maybe, but like, you know, he, whatever. And bottom line is I, I, I encouraged him and I said, I'm telling you, you could do this. You're, he's a very talented guy. And he meets this young fellow. And on the first conversation, they were like, were almost speechless. This accountant 
works in the department that he managed for 20 years. He knows every single big player accounting firm. So right away, I mean, the commonality there was off the charts. Turns out that this young fellow has a, has a Jewish girlfriend who is becoming a little frummer and a lot of different pieces. And together, not the rabbi, but the mentor was able to walk them through becoming Shomer Shabbos. Wow. And he kept saying over and over, like, I'm telling you, you want to be successful in your career, have Shabbos. It's what made me successful. And when you hear that from a rabbi, you know, you roll your eyes. Of course, you're a rabbi or you're a rabbitson. But this is a regular, very successful professional who says that, you know, important tool in his accounting toolbox is Shabbos or is learning or is Tesha or, or giving, you know, giving tzedakah. And so they're still, Baruch very much in touch. And I think if I'm not mistaken, he told me recently, maybe they got with the young couple down engaged. But bottom line, he's being Masada Kedusha. No, that part's not true. But, you know, <laughs> but, it, would but nice. <laughs> it would be nice. Uh, but like, that's just a crazy story in terms of like, you know, uh, you know, a life-changing story. But it, it shows A, the siyat of the Shemayim, but B, the power of what each person could do for one neshama. Imagine if every person in the professional firm world would accept, assume responsibility for one other person. It could totally change the face of the next generation of intermarriage and assimilation. And we could build a community to be something that we, we never imagined possible. And that's what it's all about. I mean, at the end of the day, like I get into the weeds of the technicalities of running a nonprofit, but this is what it's all about. We're changing the world one, one little step at a time, hence the name of the podcast. <laughs> um, before, okay, I, I know I said we're about to sign off, but I want to ask you this one important question because I like to leave with something very, very practical. So if someone is listening, they work for a nonprofit that either has volunteers or is thinking about it or wants to scale their volunteer system, something practical that you learn that you can share with them about how to make it work. I think I realized early on that it's a lot about the packaging. You know, everyone is constantly being bombarded. Help with this, donate to that. If I got a nickel for every time that I get, you know, campaign or WhatsApp for a campaign, I'd literally be a gear, you know? And then I'd, filmed, then I'd sit into Lakewood. But, <laughs> but all in all, I think it's a lot about the packaging and how you sell it. That's number one. And number two, I realized that if the person feels passion, and you believe in what you're trying to sell in a subtle way, they're much more likely to come on board. So A, I would ask whoever's planning on doing this to do a real cheshben on official personal accounting of how committed you are. Is this just a job or is this a mission? Is this your life or is it just to make a living? Because it'll come across and then perfect your sale. It's no different than any other type of sale, you know? Okay, it has more siyat to the shmai, but like ultimately it's like how you package it, how you present it. It can't, like I said, it can't be too much of an ask, but it has to be something substantive. And you need to show, you, you do need to show the mentor, the upside, the feeling that they'll get. And if you can bring evidence from people that they know, obviously that's so much better, but it's worthwhile preparing and figuring things out and practicing and perfecting before you'd start doing your sales your, you know, your sales pitches, because if they're good, people don't have a lot of time and they're powerful, a very good chance they're going to sign on board. And then finally, I think to understand how incredibly fortunate we are that we have a group of people who almost every single person cares about people who they never would meet and never would have a connection to and feels that that's a huge part of being a Jewish person and just a world that we're part of. You know, that empowers, should empower whoever it is that's soliciting the volunteers. 
you have a winning team out there and you have a, a listening audience, perfect your sale and you'll sell pretty quickly. Amazing. That was perfect. Couldn't have asked for better. Okay, I think right. that was practical and insightful. And I really, really appreciate that. Robbie Lanzo, thank you so much for being here. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you, if there's any questions about any of this, can you be reached? Small audience here. I, <laughs> I would absolutely love to talk to anyone. I feel like any success that we have in life, Hashem gives it to us so that we can help share it further. So they can email me at slandau at olami.org. Again, it's slandau at olami.org. Um, they can reach out to you for some reason if, if they can't get through to me. And I'm happy to make the time to share whatever little wisdom and insight that I have with anyone else and also mentor them. Oh, good plug there at the end. I like that. Robert Lanza, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. You have a lot of that stuff. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 40 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsivya at 40minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 40minds.com.